And let's uh, pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you that the Bible is your living word to us. Thank you that you breathed it out by your spirit. And thank you that through your word we are taught, rebuked, corrected and trained for righteousness and equipped for every good work. We ask and pray that as we hear your word read and then as we hear it preached, you might speak to it. Please uh, enable us to understand your word and to respond to it with faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'd like to turn to um, Acts chapter 11, we're going to read from uh, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to uh, 30, which you'll uh, find in the church Bibles, I think, on page 1105. So page 1105. Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Well, I don't think there's any doubt, is there, that we face an absolutely massive challenge to re-evangelise our nation, to re-evangelise the UK today. For the past 150 years or so, Christianity in general has declined, and it's increasingly evident that we live in a secular society that has little time for the God of the Bible. According to the most recent and reliable statistics, the probability is that committed evangelical born-again believers in the UK, who are regularly part of the life of a local church, are no more than about 2.9% of the population. And uh, at present, the growth rate in the United Kingdom is zero. The uh, numbers of uh, evangelicals are remaining static, but that is almost entirely a result of immigration into the UK of those who are evangelicals already. There are a tiny percentage of genuinely born-again believers, and the growth rate at the moment is uh, zero. Compare that to uh, other places around the world. In India at the moment, statistics suggest about 2.2% of the population are evangelical believers, 
and the growth rate is 3.9%. In China, something like 5.7% are thought to be evangelical believers, and the growth rate is 2.9%. In Nigeria, something like 30% of people are thought to be evangelical believers, and the growth rate is uh, 3.1%. That just uh, uh, brings home the extent of the challenge that we face. There are many areas of the UK, and no doubt many areas of Scotland, that are unreached for Christ, where it is difficult to find a faithful Bible-teaching gospel church. Uh, Conservative evangelicalism tends to be strong in student centres and in the South, and amongst the middle classes. But in England, the further north you go, the less gospel witness there is. There's a little gospel witness amongst working class communities and amongst uh, many of the ethnic communities. According to the uh, most recent statistics in Scotland, in the last census, something like 27.5% of people said they had no religion at all. And in the period between 2005 and 2010, church membership in Scotland declined by 16%. And that has continued. My guess is that for a period of time, Scotland has remained a slightly more religious culture than England, but that the decline here is coming very rapidly and very quickly. That is just something of the challenge that we face as a nation. How are we going to re-evangelize a lost people? How are we going to bring the gospel to them? What hope do we have? Well, if we face a massive challenge, then uh, the very first Christians faced uh, apparently a much greater challenge. The Lord Jesus had uh, died and uh, risen and ascended to be with his Father in heaven. He had made salvation possible by his uh, death for sins, bearing in himself the wrath of God that our sin deserves. He triumphed over sin and over Satan and over death. He was uh, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God uh, in heaven. Uh, Salvation was now available to everyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. But he left a group of maybe no more than five or six hundred followers in Jerusalem, And he gave them the responsibility to take the good news of that salvation to the very ends of the earth. His final instructions in the book of Acts to his uh, disciples was that they were to be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. And that's why I think the book of Acts is such an encouragement to us as we read of how this tiny group were able to take the good news of the Lord Jesus throughout the ancient world to the very center of the Roman Empire in Rome itself, to take that uh, gospel good news to the ends of the earth and to all different kinds of people. The book of Acts tells that story, and I think it's there as an encouragement to us and also as an example uh, for us as we face um, our missionary challenge. What was it that enabled those early Christians to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Well, it was uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. The uh, book of Acts describes how Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to his people to uh, be with them, to equip them, to empower them for the uh, work of mission. As we uh, read through the book of Acts, it's the Spirit 
who leads and guides them. It's the Spirit who fills them to give boldness. It's the Spirit who convicts people of the truth of the gospel. Yes, it's the power of the Spirit. It's also the uh, work of gifted individuals. The uh, book of Acts is structured around two key characters. The first half around the Apostle Peter and his ministry, and the second half around the Apostle Paul and his ministry. And they had a tremendous role in seeing the gospel go out. But we also find when we read the book of Acts that crucial to this work of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth was the work of strategic churches working together. See, God's work is done not just through individuals but through his church expressed in local churches. And in the book of Acts, we really see three strategic churches. Firstly, the uh, church in Jerusalem, where it all began. Then in the middle of the book of Acts, the uh, church in Antioch, which we're going to be thinking about, which became the launch pad for a, a wider world mission. And then finally, the church in Jerusalem, which is where, the, uh, sorry, the church in Rome, which is where the book of Acts ends with Paul preaching the gospel to the very heart of the empire. And uh, we see that it's these three strategic churches working together that enabled the gospel to go out so widely. And the church that we're going to be looking at, the church at Antioch, is I think very much the unsung hero of the New Testament story. If we think of uh, New Testament churches, you probably don't think of the uh, Church of Antioch. There's no letter to the Church of Antioch. But the book of Acts tells us that it had a crucial role. Antioch uh, in Syria was the third largest city in the empire. So it was a strategic place. A population in those days of a quarter of a million. Something like 25,000 diaspora Jews who were living there. It was a multicultural city with people from every background. And uh, it was a center of trade and a route of communication. And uh, it's the church that's established in this city that has a significant impact in the growth of the gospel throughout the uh, whole region and the whole empire. And one of the things I think we see as uh, Luke relates to us the story of the church in Antioch and the work of the church in Antioch, is he wants to stress the way that these strategic churches worked together, the way that they were interconnected to spread the gospel. We see that they work together, that that brings a bigger vision, which enables the gospel to cross key boundaries. So what I want to focus on is the church at Antioch, and to particularly look at this way that the churches were interconnected so that the work of the gospel would expand and uh, grow. So I want to look at five aspects of the way in which we see in the church of Antioch this interconnection that led to the spread of the gospel. And the first of those is this. The church in Antioch was started by members of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch was started by members of the church in Jerusalem. The uh, church of Antioch came about as people who had been displaced by persecution 
of the church in Jerusalem came to this city. Do you notice that in uh, verse uh, 19? Those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Just a few short chapters uh, back in the uh, book of Acts, uh, persecution had broken out in Jerusalem. Uh, Stephen had been stoned, and uh, all of the church fled from Jerusalem, leaving uh, just the apostles and the leaders. From a human perspective, it looked like a disaster for the church. But yet in God's providence and God's goodness, it led to the spread of the gospel. As those who had been converted, discipled, trained in the church of Jerusalem found themselves in Antioch and carried on gospel ministry and established this church. It's remarkable, isn't it, that having uh, faced the prospect of persecution and uh, been forced to flee, they didn't go undercover, they didn't go underground, but they arrived in Antioch and they preached the same gospel and started uh, a church. So the church in Jerusalem had this crucial role in establishing the uh, church in uh, Antioch. But it was here in Antioch, in this multicultural community, that the uh, Christians who started this church, some of them gained a bigger vision. And the gospel began to cross uh, the key ethnic and cultural divide. Look at that in verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Uh, again, in the book of Acts, uh, uh, the, the Lord Jesus had already sent the apostle Peter to take the good news of the gospel to a Cornelius, a Roman centurion, demonstrating that the gospel was not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles as well. But it's only here in Antioch that the gospel begins to be proclaimed widely to people who are from a Gentile background. And uh, they uh, reach not just the Jews, but the Greeks. They reach everybody with the good news of Jesus. And as they begin to do this, the Lord's hand was with them. They were fulfilling his very purpose. And the result is that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So here we've got this connection between these two churches, those from Jerusalem starting a church in Antioch, but in Antioch, a bigger vision that takes the gospel out more widely. And I think that's a challenge for us, isn't it? Because as we think about our country, our situation, one of our challenges is to take the gospel to all people and all different kinds of people, to take the gospel to people irrespective of their racial background, irrespective of their age, irrespective of their social class, irrespective of their nationality, irrespective of their religious background. The gospel is for everyone. And we need to work together to have that big gospel vision that will take the gospel to everyone. At the same time, I think that there are many challenges in the UK. There are also tremendous opportunities. I was teaching at uh, Oak Hill Theological College in London last uh, week, and we were talking about the Edinburgh Missionary Conference in 1910. So the church is gathered to think about taking the gospel out to the world. Well, one of the remarkable things about our culture today is um, how international and multicultural our cities and our countries have become. What a great opportunity for the gospel. 
to be sharing the gospel with people from diverse cultures and backgrounds. Years ago, people would have spent months sailing on a ship to reach some of the countries where people have flooded um, uh, to the UK for education or for work. We have a tremendous opportunity to affect the world as we reach those on our very doorstep. So here is uh, this interconnection. The interconnection between Jerusalem and Antioch that leads to the spread of the gospel far more widely with a big vision. Well, secondly, the church at Antioch is then encouraged by the leaders from the church in Jerusalem. The uh, connection goes on. Look at verse uh, 22. News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to uh, Antioch. They hear what's been happening. They hear that those who fled started a church, and they're now reaching out to all different kinds of people. And so they send Barnabas to find out what's happening. I don't think they send Barnabas here to check them out, to uh, call them to order. Barnabas in the uh, book of Acts is the uh, son of encouragement. He's the great encourager. So they send the encourager to this uh, new work in the uh, city of Antioch. And when he arrives, um, he is uh, sort of greatly encouraged by what he sees of what God is doing. Verse 23, he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So here the leaders from the church in Jerusalem come and they encourage the church at Antioch. They encourage them in their gospel ministry. They encourage them to keep faithful to the gospel that they're proclaiming. And Barnabas remains with them and he exercises his ministry amongst them. He continues to teach them and explain the gospel. He strengthens this local church so that it's able to grow And the picture is not of Barnabas coming in and taking charge. We find from uh, chapter 13 and verse 1 that this was a a church with a a, a kind of a a plural leadership. Chapter 13, verse 1, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, a variety of different people ministering in this church. And it's interesting that Barnabas and Saul are simply described as prophets and teachers along with the others. It's not that Barnabas came in and took charge. Now, he came in and supported, encouraged, and helped build up the work in the church. And then Barnabas, again, extended the scope of the gospel ministry by bringing in Saul to come and help with the work in Antioch. So again, we get this uh, connection. Verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, brought him to uh, Antioch. Saul we know better as the uh, Apostle Paul, but uh, Luke is reminding us this is very early days. Saul has been converted um, uh, recently. He's uh, only just beginning to be recognized as an apostle. And uh, Barnabas embraces him and brings him to this multicultural church so that his gifting can be developed and recognized. Do you notice the irony that here is a church that was birthed out of the persecution that took place in Jerusalem when Stephen was killed. And who was it who was watching Stephen stoned to death holding the cloaks? Well, it was Saul. But yet now Saul is the very man that Barnabas brings to come and help with the ministry there. I mean, imagine what you might have felt like if you were one of those first Christians and you discover that Saul, the great persecutor, 
is coming to uh, help build up the uh, work and ministry of the church. But Barnabas knew that Saul had been called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It was here in Antioch that this Gentile mission was really getting off the ground as they shared the gospel with everyone. So who better to come and help with this work and take it forwards than Saul himself? And the result is that the church at Antioch became a teaching and a training church. We find uh, that uh, here uh, Saul and Barnabas uh, spent a whole year teaching this church. Uh, A great number of people become disciples. Their distinctive identity as Christians is formed and recognized by the outsiders. We discover that there's a whole group of leaders who are raised up to uh, serve this church in Antioch and more widely. So that interconnection, the encouragement that they received from the church in Jerusalem, the connection with uh, Saul who uh, uh, came and began his ministry there, just enabled the gospel to go out more widely. Well, thirdly, we see that the uh, church in Antioch supported the church in Jerusalem financially. This was a a two-way connection. We uh, read in uh, uh, chapter uh, 11 and verse 27 onwards that uh, some prophets come to Antioch from Jerusalem. And uh, this man, Agabus, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives a prophecy that there's going to be a famine throughout the whole Roman uh, world. Now, the uh, uh, church in Antioch realize that this is going to affect the uh, church in Jerusalem far more than it's going to affect them. The church in Jerusalem is at the edge of the empire. It's likely to be neglected. As the famine takes hold, the uh, peripheral um, uh, church in Jerusalem, um, particularly because it's an ethnically Jewish church, is likely to feel the worst effects of this famine. So what does the church in Antioch do? Well, they're moved to give generously to care for their brothers and sisters in uh, Jerusalem. They feel a responsibility to them. They recognize that although they're sort of separate local churches, they're all part of the same family. And so they give as they are able to help the uh, brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. This is really the precursor to uh, Paul's collections from amongst his Gentile churches for the benefit of the uh, uh, Christians in Judea and Jerusalem. You see, this uh, connection that there is between the churches takes a very practical and tangible form as they uh, provide for those who are in need. And actually, that's a a, a biblical principle. Paul talks about it extensively in uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, how within the economy of the churches, those who have much have a responsibility to share with those who have less. There's an obligation of mutual support so that the work of the gospel as a whole may be sustained and may grow. No doubt the church in Antioch could have used these resources for themselves. They could have built up their own ministry. But instead they chose to support the work in Jerusalem and help sustain it. And uh, no doubt the uh, support that was received in Jerusalem was a powerful testimony to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem of the power of the gospel. So they were willing to support uh, financially their brothers in Jerusalem. 
Well, fourthly, having been established, having become secure, this church in Antioch then went on to become a base for missionary church planting. So uh, having uh, this connection with the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch began to establish uh, churches elsewhere and uh, developing connections with them. And again, through that, the gospel uh, spread. We read of this really at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. So if you look down to chapter 12 and verse uh, 25, uh, Saul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem to take the collection and deliver it to the church there. And then they come back to uh, Antioch, perhaps thinking that they're going to continue their mission ministry there. But uh, God has other plans. And we read when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they prayed and fasted, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. See, God commanded them to send out Barnabas and Saul, and that's exactly what they did. They commissioned them, and they supported them. And uh, they then went out and planted churches in the major cities of the, uh, uh, sort of that part of the Roman Empire. We uh, read of their first missionary journey. They started uh, gospel works in Cyprus, in Sidian Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, and in Derby. They came back and reported to the church at Antioch all that God had done through them, and the church rejoiced. Then subsequently, the church sent them out again. They went their separate ways. But Paul planted strategic churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in Corinth, in Ephesus. So from this uh, church in Antioch, churches were planted in all of the strategic centers, which would then themselves spread gospel work into their sort of wider communities and regions. And all because the church in Antioch was willing to give Saul and Barnabas away to this work and support them in it because they had a bigger vision for the gospel going out. It can't have been easy. The church was being asked to give away its uh, best leaders. In a sense, the uh, church was giving away its celebrity pastors. And if you ask sort of, uh, uh, sort of about the church in Antioch, what did the uh, uh, churches know about the church of Antioch? Well, they've got Saul and Barnabas. They've got these apostles with them. But instead, the church was willing to send them out for the greater work of the uh, gospel. And the church in Antioch developed connections with all of these churches that were uh, planted as a result of the uh, planters that they sent out. Well, lastly and finally, the church in Antioch shared in the collective decision-making of the church. Shared in the collective decision-making of the church. That's really in chapter 15, where we uh, find the uh, council in uh, Jerusalem. As the uh, gospel began to grow and uh, the uh, good news of Jesus spread to uh, particularly the Gentiles, that led to division and controversy. There were those who were amongst the uh, Jewish Christians who thought that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. If they were really going to be God's people, they needed 
um, to be uh, circumcised. And so they thought that the uh, Christians in Antioch who weren't circumcised weren't proper believers. And this um, issue uh, had the danger of impeding the spread of the gospel. It would make it incredibly difficult for people to become Christians if to do so they needed to become Jewish in their culture and their behavior. And so the uh, people from the church of Antioch went up to Jerusalem to help resolve this issue. This um, division, this problem, was not sort of a, a, w- 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 had a crucial effect potentially on the spread of the gospel. So it was vital that it was sorted uh, out. So we read in uh, chapter 15 that uh, the uh, sort of uh, representatives of the church of Antioch went up to Jerusalem. So I'll just read the first couple of verses. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Verse 3, the church sends them on their way. So they gather with the uh, church leaders in uh, Jerusalem. And when they're there, they share with them the good news of how God has been at work. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done amongst the Gentiles through them. So here the church more widely comes together to discern God's will as to how to address this potential cause of division, this big theological problem. And collectively they recognize that God does not require Gentiles to become Jewish in order to be saved that they don't need to become circumcised and obey the requirements of the law. And the result is that the gospel is able to go on spreading freely. So the church at Antioch, connected with the church in Jerusalem, is able to address this fundamental problem that could derail the work of the gospel and the work of mission. So I think as we look at this church in Antioch, We see the importance of uh, interconnection between churches. And we see that it's important because it leads to the spread and the growth of the gospel. I think the uh, biblical position is that local churches are meant to be independent. They uh, oversee their own affairs. But they're never meant to be isolated from one another. They are meant to be part of the one wider family of God's church. Working together for the bigger cause of the gospel. And just as in the case of uh, the church at Antioch, that brings blessings. It brings the blessing of gospel growth. It brings the blessing of the gospel crossing boundaries as people who come from very different cultures and backgrounds stand together and get to know each other and work together. It leads to the development of leaders for the next generation. It leads to planting new gospel work. It leads to avoiding division. And I think as we face the gospel challenge in our nation today, this interconnectedness between churches is going to be essential if we're to meet that challenge. Uh, Last year, we, uh, as the FIEC, conducted a survey into various areas in the UK where there is little or no gospel witness. We identified some very significant communities with populations of 250,000 or 100,000. Where as far as we can tell, there is very little in the way of faithful gospel witness. 
how are we going to plant churches into those places unless strategic churches work together to make it possible? Providing leaders and providing support. One of my experiences of, uh, uh, of independent churches is that many independent churches have a great vision for their own immediate community. And many also have a great vision for world mission. But often the missing middle is a vision for our own nation and the work of the gospel in our own nation. And I think that's perhaps because we've assumed that our nation doesn't need to be re-evangelized. But it does. And groups like the FIEC exist to bring about that national vision of churches working together to reach our nation for Christ. My guess is, and from everything that I've heard and everything that I've seen, um, at Charlotte Chapel, in many ways, you're already doing many of these things. This is not new to you and to your vision. Uh, actually, I've benefited from the uh, work of Charlotte Chapel in the past. When I planted a City Evangelical Church in Birmingham uh, 14 years ago, one of the uh, guys that I planted with was a man called Hugh Thompson, who was uh, part of the church here at Charlotte. Some of you may know him. Um, uh, I would imagine for many of you, he was before your time. But uh, he was a doctor who was uh, converted while he was a medical student in Aberdeen. He went to a Church of Scotland church there for a number of years, but was never really built up in the gospel while he was there. He then moved to a train as a surgeon at uh, Edinburgh and came here to Charlotte Chapel, where really for the first time he heard regular faithful gospel ministry. He uh, began to develop gifts for ministry. He started to be sent out to preach in local churches. And really it was here in this church that he was given a vision for local church and a vision for gospel ministry and preaching. He went on and spent some time in Cambridge and then ended up in Birmingham. And he and I were living in houses just a couple of streets apart on the same estate. And we started praying together. And it was out of that that City Church was birthed. And the investment that you made in somebody like Hugh those years ago, in the end, paid off in the planting and establishment of what is now a thriving church in the centre of Birmingham. And that is what we need all across the country if we're to see the gospel go out. Scotland, it seems to me, is in urgent need of greater gospel work and gospel expansion. Uh, it's great that in Edinburgh, the um, uh, uh, East of Scotland Gospel Partnership is helping churches to work together to reach the city. But a, a significant church like Charlotte Chapel needs to have a, a vision for its immediate community, its region, the nation, and then even uh, beyond that internationally. I think um, today there's a great opportunity for independency in Scotland it seems to me that uh, independency is the, the biblical model for church life. And uh, there's great scope for uh, growth and investment in faithful independent churches in Scotland. The FIEC has been small in Scotland, but in many ways, uh, I felt over the past couple of years, it's on the cusp. What lots of churches have said to me is, why should we join when you're so small? And the reality is, if the seven or eight large churches that say that all got together and said if we all join at the same time, it wouldn't be that small. There'd be a great scope for a, a gospel movement seeking um, to advance the gospel through independent churches north of the border. I think at uh, Charlotte Chapel, just given the city, given the nature of the ministry, in many ways you're in Antioch already. 
And I hope that perhaps the FIEC might give you an opportunity to be able to bless a wider constituency with the benefits of what you're already uh, doing. I know that um, I've been invited here because uh, as a church you're thinking about the possibility of joining the FIEC. In a sense, I, I would only want you to join the FIEC if you saw it as a way of advancing your gospel vision. That's the purpose. That's what's most important. The FIEC is simply a vehicle that enables churches, I hope, to be able to do that more effectively. But if we are to reach our nation for Christ, I do think that independent churches will need to be much more connected with each other to support and encourage and spread and extend the work of the gospel. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for this church in Antioch, which is such a model and example to us. Thank you that it was a church that was a faithful gospel church. Thank you that it preached the gospel to all people, irrespective of their racial background, their class, their culture, their age. Thank you that it was a church where people were trained and built up in uh, Christian discipleship and Christian ministry. Thank you that it was a church that was willing to give up its leaders to serve the wider cause of the gospel and to plant churches elsewhere. Thank you that it was a church that was willing to support um, uh, those Christians who were in need. And thank you that it was a church that was able to influence the decision-making of the church more widely. Father, thank you that as a result of this, um, uh, there was great blessing and gospel growth. Father, we recognize that we are in a situation of immense gospel need. We would long that our country and our nation would once again be reached with the good news of the Lord Jesus. And we ask and pray, Father, that if there are lessons for us from this church in Antioch, that we would learn them and put them into practice, that we might work together with other gospel churches so that the good news of the Lord Jesus is widely proclaimed. We would long there would be a time where every community has a thriving gospel work that is proclaiming Christ, making him known and seeing people come to salvation. And we ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.